Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. A new website and map promoted by anti-Israel groups in Massachusetts claims to illustrate organizations and institutions in the state that they say are responsible for harm against Palestinians. But the colorful array of dots and lines being circulated by the shadowy group BDS Boston has raised alarms over its dangerous targeting of the Jewish community. In fact, backlash has been swift, prompting some BDS groups to distance themselves from the project after initially promoting it. But it's not just the Jewish community that's in danger. Here to talk about who's in danger and why is Rob Lykend, director of AJC New England. Rob, welcome to People of the Pod. It's great to be here. So let's start by giving our listeners a a better description of what and who is pinpointed on this map. It's extraordinary. We're talking about 400-plus organizations that range from universities to police departments to municipalities to NGOs to high-tech organizations, biopharma organizations, hospitals, the ACLU, Berkeley College of Music. It goes on and on and on. And it's all part of a great web of conspiracy that places Israel somewhere around the heart of the whole conspiracy. What does the School of Music have to do with Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) But this is a construction that sort of sees a grand imperial project orchestrated by the United States, but with Israel as an avatar of this imperial project overseas. And it sees all these organizations as in some way contributing to the colonization and oppression of people of color, and most especially Israel, which seems to have a special place in the moral universe, the Mass Peace Action, the BDS Massachusetts, all of these people who conjure up very traditional anti-Semitic modes of thinking, which see Israel as the emblem of what is evil in the world and see the United States as very much a partner in that enterprise. So who has raised concerns about this map? I ask that question because it's not really the usual suspects, right? Many people who raised concerns about Israel in the past, and they're raising concerns about this map, right? Yeah, it has a number of features to it. The BDS movement sort of ripped off its veil on itself because what it did is it showed itself the underlying ideological framework for their beliefs which isn't just that somehow the Israelis have oppressed Palestinians. It is that it's part of a greater imperial project which places Jews as a key player, if not a central player in that whole project. I think many people have come to understand that when people talk about BDS, finally they're beginning to realize they're talking about something much more than just a dispute between two groups and that this is part of an ideological struggle, which is rooted in a giant conspiracy theory. As a result, what we're finding is that people who have not usually spoken up on it have really come to appreciate the horror that many of us in the Jewish community feel, in particular because many of us now have our names and addresses in public circulation. Um, And uh, together with 
the expectation that the work we do will be dismantled, whatever that should mean to people. Now, I said one of these groups calls itself Boston BDS, which, of course, stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement. Can you talk a little bit about your other conversations across the New England area regarding BDS? I mean, you've been involved in educating government officials in in other New England states like Vermont, for example, about the movement's actual intentions, right? Right, right. So the BDS movement can say fairly that Boston and New England is one of the centers of what I'd call progressive political culture in the United States. And in that environment, there has been a well of support for BDS, and it's shown up in efforts of city councils adopt resolutions supporting BDS. And we've ended up in some scrums trying to oppose that. But I think what's very important is that when we got engaged in conversations with people and they began to understand what BDS is, and why we're concerned about it, very often people withdrew. So for example, in Burlington, Vermont, it's one of the areas where we had a, um, what I think is fairly intense debate about whether or not the municipality should adopt a BDS resolution. And we had the opportunity to engage with the city council member who was instrumental in the adoption, the effort to adopt this this resolution. Turns out he's a man who grew up in Senegal moved to the United States. He's Muslim. He understood BDS as something that's going to help a disempowered people, the Palestinians, and as an act, move towards justice. We had a chance to talk at length. And he said that he's very moved by the response from the Jewish community. He had no idea about the background to this conflict. And he said that he wanted to withdraw the resolution. All of which is to say that we have forces here that are driving misinformation are not interested in peaceful resolution to this conflict. And we're involved in the struggle with these forces now. In fact, AJC's 2021 State of Anti-Semitism in America report found that large majorities of American Jews and the general public already believe the BDS movement has some anti-Semitic elements, right? I mean, 82% of American Jews say it's either mostly anti-Semitic or has anti-Semitic supporters, and 66% of the general public said the same. So it does seem like there is a, a growing understanding about what the intentions of it are. I think that's true. And it's also, to a certain extent, geographically grounded. There are places in the country where people are going to be much more disposed to recognize the problems with BDS and appreciate that singling out Israel and Jews in the way this movement does and you know, advocating for the destruction of Israel is something other than normal political discourse. That said, we do find that there are significant pockets of support, and particularly in this region, we have to work extra hard to educate people, to recognize that disagreements about Israel and Israeli policy and what happens between Israeli-Palestinians is part of legitimate discourse. This is something else. But now the BDS movement is not just an attack on Israel, right, or on the Jewish community. It's really as you said, part of a larger ideological attack on the United States, on Western values, right? I think it is. And I think that one of the things that makes the mapping project important, and I hope that people will not overlook this, is that the mapping project really does lay out this ideological framework. This is a neo-Marxist movement, and I'm not saying that in any disparaging way. It's simply the recognition of some of the origins. It's based on this notion that the U.S. is a source of evil in the world, 
that is busy colonizing the world and is a source of pain and sorrow for people around the world rather than a beacon of hope for freedom in the world. This is a debate that's going on. We have to understand that BDS is a weapon in that debate. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Israel is in a struggle about nationalism to two nationalisms that are competing for the same piece of land. And we need to understand that there's this struggle going on. People are trying to leverage this conflict to advance their ideological purposes. Rob, has it evolved into this ideological movement? In other words, BDS, I mean, didn't it really start as an effort to wipe Israel off the map? I mean, right, to just to end the state of Israel. Has this intention or purpose broadened over time in order to broaden its appeal? I think that the founders of the BDS movement were Palestinian nationalists who saw an opportunity to try to leverage opinion in the West through this movement. And they found many willing supporters. Inevitably, BDS is now being instrumentalized to advance other ideological purposes today. So the BDS supporters now find themselves identified with movements for racial justice, for example, which is terribly unfortunate because it takes a very important message that we all support and really introduces elements that make it less trustworthy and meaningful. And there's also something deeply cynical about it. When this issue, which is rooted in a struggle overseas, is now instrumentalized in ways that dilute important discussions here in the United States. Now, in February, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker endorsed the IRA working definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which says, among other things, that holding Jews collectively responsible for Israel's actions can be anti-Semitic. Rob, has the definition been useful in this situation? That's such a great question. So uh, the, the governor came out in support of the IRA definition. There isn't been a formal process of adopting it. And one of our legislative houses issued a a resolution, the House issued a resolution a few years ago endorsing it. The Senate hasn't done it here. So this is still a story in play. I think that the IRA definition is not deeply entrenched enough yet. I will tell you that it is a project of our AGC New England. We're reaching out to municipalities and synagogues to generate greater support for the IRA definition and advance training in that area. I think this is exactly the kind of language, though, that could help focus this kind of conversation around the mapping project. So I think it's the kind of thing that I hope we will be using more in the future. Part of the effort is to turn the IRA definition of anti-Semitism into a household construct that people can turn to readily. So how can people in Massachusetts speak up about this map? We've been reaching out to members of our congressional delegation and also to leaders in the House and the Senate here in Massachusetts, as well as some of our constitutional officers, encouraging them to speak out on this. Last week, we sent out a letter to our constituents, thousands of them, encouraging them to either thank legislators who've spoken out or encourage those who haven't to speak out on this, either through social media statement or a posting on their website and so on. I'm happy to say that the response to our request was huge. People really stepped up in a significant way and reached out to their officials. 
And it's so important because whether they choose to enter into this fray or not, they've heard from their constituencies now. We're not talking two or three or four, we're talking dozens, including members of the House and Senate. Very importantly, the governor was among those who spoke out, as was Senators Warren and Senators Markey. Even Ayanna Presley, who some were surprised did, she registered a disapproval of the mapping project. We want to use this opportunity to make clear that we recognize anti-Semitism when we see it, that we have a public that is ready to speak out on it. And I think we made some headway in that regard. Have there been rumblings about similar maps, copycat cartography, if you will, elsewhere besides the Bay State? The answer is I have not heard any. People have reached out to me and said, you know, we want to prepare. We want to learn your lessons from this. And that's important. I will tell you that when I first learned about this project, my initial instinct was to sort of say, don't give it any oxygen. Um, That lasted about two hours. That never works, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently not. Um, Because it it took, it really, within two hours, it's that, what was I thinking? And it became apparent that we needed to engage in this. And what was seen most important at that moment was that we reach out to some of our public officials who really needed this translated for them. This is a lot to look at. Somebody spent a lot of time putting this together. And so translating this, helping people appreciate why this is so deeply concerning, understand what this is about, was important. And I think there's actually still more work to do in that area. If you live in Massachusetts, help stand against BDS by supporting those who have called out the Mapping Project's Jew hatred and urge those who have not yet done so to denounce the Mapping Project. Please visit the link in our show notes to take action. And for those outside the Massachusetts area, you can learn more at AJC.org slash Global Voice. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for our occasional segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week to continue the conversation about the mapping project is Ian Kaplan, one of American Jewish Committee's Goldman Fellows. AJC's Goldman Summer Fellowship Program is designed to develop future leaders in the areas of international and domestic politics, diplomacy, public relations, and management. And it's made possible by a generous grant from the Joyce and Irving Goldman Family Foundation. Ian, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Manya, for having me on the podcast. Ian will be behind the scenes of the podcast this summer. But first, we wanted to hear his perspective on the mapping project, which is close to home for you, right, Ian, as you have just completed your first year at Tufts University. You've seen the map. You've read all about this project. What struck you as odd? What struck me as sort of odd was the fact that a lot of these organizations or places in general that were targeted seem to have little to no links to Israel. And one example of which is the Tufts University Police Department, which happens to be right next to my dorm. And that's pretty close to, I think, 10 to 15 officers, so very small. And those are officers that work to protect my campus and keep it safe. And they have basically little to no affiliation to Israel other than something that happened several years ago. But even so, it's an extremely, extremely small link. And I think this speaks volumes to the mapping project. And what it really is, is it's just attempting to weaponize a basic facet of Jewish identity, which is that of the connection to Israel. So what was the tiny connection to Israel with the Tufts Police Department a few years ago? 
So several years ago, the Tufts University police chief and I think several officers took a trip to Israel to meet with Israeli leaders and hear about counterterrorism responses. And they also met with Palestinian leaders as well, sort of on safety and security issues. So it had nothing to do with police brutality and racism, which BDS has used in the past to attribute to Israel. It had nothing to do with it. It was purely for counterterrorism issues. It was falsely attributed then, and it's being falsely attributed to a lot of the problems of police brutality in our country now. That's often referred to as the deadly exchange trope, which compares American police actions against black Americans with the Israeli Defense Forces treatment of Palestinians. And deadly exchange, I I use finger quotes, is the trope that is used. And it is considered certainly a form of anti-Semitism. And you can read more about the deadly exchange trope in AJC's Translate Hate glossary, which is a really helpful resource. So, Ian, how do you navigate discourse about Israel among your peers? You know, it's very easy when it comes to talking about Israel for things to be sort of spun kind of out of control when sort of one quote can be taken out of context and then the rest is history. And that, and we've seen that play out a lot on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and a lot of people, you know. When it comes to talking about Israel, which is obviously a very controversial and sensitive topic, for me, I choose, I'm very careful about choosing my battles and sort of choosing picking my battles here and there. And, you know, when it comes to having a conversation with someone on Instagram or Twitter in a public forum that's recorded, that can be screenshotted, that can be shared over and over again, it's probably not a good idea. No matter how much I disagree with what others are saying, it's probably not a good idea to interject my opinion just by that sort of wokeness sort of cancel culture factor. But also at the same time, there are other instances where I'm in the dining hall or maybe I'm in a classroom where sitting back and not saying anything is not enough today. And I think inserting my ideas and inserting my opinions and being that pro-Israel voice is something that takes a lot of courage. Unfortunately, it shouldn't have to be that way, but it's something that's very necessary. I also attempt at basically any point to steer the conversation towards mutually agreed upon topics. You know, both sides want peace. You know, we want free expression, safety and security, human rights. These are all things that everyone agrees on. And I think sort of establishing that as the basis and then sort of moving forward and saying, you know, I actually disagree with you on this point, but I think we can both agree on this. I think that's the most productive way to navigate discourse on college campuses today. How often does this discourse play out one-on-one? In most cases, it happens on one-on-one face-to-face discourse. At least I can only speak to my experience. But in my experience, that has been the case on several occasions. One occasion occurred when I met with a Tunisian student who's, you know, an international student. And he, having lived and being born and raised in Tunisia for basically his whole life, you know, in Tunisia, basically having kind of an anti-Israel view that that's the normal there. And so he came to me and we had a conversation about Israel and sort of our childhoods, our backgrounds, and kind of what we think about the conflict now and sort of what gives us hope as to what we can do going forward. And we had a very productive conversation because he said a lot of things that I disagree with, and I'm sure I said a lot of things that he disagreed with. But at the end of the day, we're two students at Tufts who want to learn more about each other and we want to make the world a better place. And that was something that from the beginning of the conversation was established until the end, and that was not questioned at all. The fact that we were able to do that, it's very encouraging on my end, the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you've been 
you know, raised to believe if you're willing to have a conversation, if you're willing to have an open mind, if you're willing to learn, you know, anything is possible. But, you know, of course, it's sad to say this, but that is extraordinarily important when it comes to talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yes. Well, thank you so much for giving us a snapshot of what it has been like on Tufts campus. And Ian, we look forward to working with you this summer. Thank you so much. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation about Jewish activists in progressive spaces with comedian David Badil, journalist Yair Rosenberg, and activist Rachel Fish in our first live onstage recording in two years at AJC Global Forum 2022. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.